Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Fellowship of Faith. I, hey, good morning to you, Mark. Um, my name is Keith Peters. I'm on staff here at Fellowship of Faith, and I have the privilege, and I very much mean that, to uh, teach you this morning and walk with you through what we've been doing on this journey through the Old Testament. We're into week three, and today we're going to look specifically at Genesis chapter two. So uh, I hope you're ready, rip-roaring, and whatever you need to do to get yourself motivated. Um, real quick, what I want to, to do is give you a little bit of a window of what I'm going to try and attempt for you this morning, because I find that when it comes to the Old Testament, and in particular certain portions of the Old Testament, the idea of reading these sections makes our eyes want to glaze over. You know what I mean? And rightly so, perhaps. But I would like to give you a window into some of the more, what you would consider mundane portions, probably, at first glance, and show you how they're not so mundane, and they actually do apply and have um, importance for us today. Here's what I mean by that. See, I think we have this idea that the Old Testament is antiquated, it's ancient, and it serves no real purpose for us today in terms of like, they don't do what I do. They don't think how I think. They don't act how I act. They don't live how I live. You know what I mean? Like, there's so many things they do that just seem so foreign to us. But I would argue that on the surface, you might be able to make that argument. But here's the thing about human nature. Some things seem to be consistent since the dawn of time, since the beginning of time, and I think that they'll probably stay true until the end of time, until eternity comes. And here's one of those. It has to do with the temple. I know what you're thinking, the temple? You mean that stuff in the Bible where it's just like list after list of like things that go into the temple and how they're made and what they're made of? Oh my goodness, are you serious? You want me to think of like reading that stuff? Maybe you don't think that, but I, like, I think that sometimes when I come to it in the Bible. You know, like, you get to the middle, midpoint of Exodus, and you're, like, looking at those headings going, okay, there's a lampstand. Okay, there's an altar. Okay. And it's, like, very detailed accounts of this stuff. I find that we have one of three approaches when we come to this kind of thing. You know, like, I'm going to start in Genesis, and I'm going to read the Bible all the way through, and you get to midpoint of Exodus, and you're like, whoa. You either go... I'm just going to kind of skip over that section. Or you might go, I don't think I can do this anymore, <laughs> right? If, the, if this is how it's going to be, forget this. I'm not reading anymore. Or you might go, no way, doggone it. I'm going to persevere. I'm stubborn, and I'm going to read this stuff. And then you get to the end of it, and you go, I'm never getting that part of my life back. You know what I mean? Like, I just read that. I have no idea what I just read but I did it because I'm stubborn, and man, the stubbornness cost me a lot of my life, right? So that's the point you take away from that, um, spiritual truth. Well, what I'd like to do is show you how that's not so, so much the case with this section, and I want to kind of peel back the layers, but in order to do that, I want to use an illustration. See, the temple is really just about intentional space. The temple's really just about setting things up in a particular way for a particular purpose. You do this all the time, right? If we walked in here and there was only one chair in this area, you'd be like, this is going to be really weird because there's going to be an all-out brawl for that one seat, right? 
Um, that, that's just not a very good use of space. So we kind of set up our space intentionally for different purposes. This is true in your home. But I find that there's one place in particular where this is more true and brings out a lot of the temple imagery in the Bible more than any other. And that's this thing called the man cave. You know what the man cave is? You ever seen? It's usually buried deep within some intersanctum in the house, right? And only certain people, you know, end up being able to go in there. And there's one kind of keeper of this place that you can enter. Well, there's a lot that has in, that it has in common with the temple proper. And here's how this works. So if the temple is like the Garden of, the Garden of Eden, and it's, it's like the, the temple is like the man cave, then the Garden of Eden is like, often these man caves have like a sports theme. So let's go with that. It's like the stadium. Here's, here's how this works. So for instance, have you ever noticed in these man caves how there's like only a select group that can enter. And usually it's like gender-based or age-based, right? Or have you ever noticed that there's like high holy days in the man cave, (laughs) right? There's like March, the entire month of March perhaps is madness there, right? Or uh, there's playoffs or there's the World Cup. So there's like certain holy days that it revolves around. And you're, you're not allowed in the man cave if, if you don't meet certain requirements, right? If you, if you have certain um, disabilities in the temple, it would have been physical. In this case, it's usually team-related, okay? So, so there's this correlation as well. But if you walk in, if you ever have the privilege of walking into one of these intersanctums of the man cave, you will notice that the decor has a, a particular theme. Usually one team predominates, Right? So you walk in and there's like all this memorabilia and it's like written, it's like signed by the hands of the gods, some of it, right? And it's placed in certain places in there. But if you ever go in, you'll find that one thing kind of remains the central focus of the man cave, the TV, because the television is like the Ark of the Covenant. It gives you a window, it gives you a window into seeing what the place is really about. You can see in the television the actual place that this thing is built around. Do you see this? That's what's happening with the temple. See, the temple is not really just about, oh, look at this cool tent or building that we built. It's really about Genesis 2 in the Garden of Eden and what's happening there. And what I'd like to do with you is do a little expose of Genesis 2. So if you've got a Bible... Pull out your Bible, and I want to point out first off in Genesis 2 how it begins. Last week, Dave mentioned how the breaking of the chapter from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2 is um, erroneous, and I would agree with that. Like chapters 2, that little section of 1 through 3 should really go with chapter 1, but here's why this chapter break is so weird, because really what chapter 2 verse 1 through 3 of Genesis is doing is it's working as a transition sentence. Any English majors out there still looking for employment? You know what a transition sentence is, right? Transition sentence takes you from one theme and takes you into another. That's what's happening here in 1 through 3. What is 1 through 3 about? Well, look here with me. It says, thus, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. 
And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, at first glance, you might think, okay, this is what happens after God creates everything. But then notice how in chapter two, it starts to almost sound very similar to chapter one. And when you get to verse seven, something interesting happens. God plants a garden. The creation is followed by a rest, and then God's rest results in starting to plant a garden. Now, rest, we have to understand that rest in this sense doesn't mean curling up on the couch for a good nap. Rest is used in other connotations than that. So here's what I mean. So when you see the tabernacle being built in Exodus, you know that section that we like want to skip over? The whole climax of that is God's up on Mount Sinai. They're building this thing that he's describing. And God, when it's built, comes down from the mountain and settles or rests upon the tabernacle. He's resting on or in it in a very literal sense. Now, that doesn't mean God comes down and takes a nap, right? He comes down and now let's get down to business, okay? So there's that idea of rest. This happens with the temple as well. Don't think that it's just a one-shot or two-time finale because what happens with the temple is God comes to Solomon and David, and the text tells us in Kings that God gave Solomon rest from all of the enemies. Rest precedes the building of the temple. And then what happens in the temple? God comes to rest in there as well. Really, the temple, the tabernacle, and the Garden of Eden all have this in common. It's where God chooses to dwell. It's the presence of God is there, right? God makes this garden. He puts people in it. And then there's this, there's this communion, if you will, There's this togetherness that's so important to the garden. Now, sin comes into the picture, and you start to get the pictures of the temple. Now, one thing I want to give you for context, this is just kind of like for fun. So uh, it, it kind of gives another window into what Genesis 2 does, because often these, temp- these temples in the ancient Near East would have gardens next to them. And these gardens were meant for the priests to feed the actual God that was in the, gar- in the temple. Because that's where in the ancient Near East, gods dwelt in the, gar- in the temple as well. They rested there. This was not unique in terms of an idea to Israel. But how this whole relationship works is what the priests do, what the God does, and what the temple is doing, they... they kind of have different nuances, one of which is the purpose of this garden. Here, in the ancient Near East, the garden feeds the gods. In the Garden of Eden, who's the garden for? Who's it taking care of? It is not taking care of God. It is taking care of the people or the atoms he put there. Okay, now, here's an important distinction before we get any further, as I kind of set up these layers for you. When I use the word Adam today, I don't want you to think of a dude. I want you to think of humanity. 
Adam in the Bible has both of these connotations. It's the name of this guy, but it's the name not only of a guy, it's the name of all humanity. It's the word in Hebrew that gets used for people. Specifically, you can look at 1, 26 through 28-ish of Genesis, and you'll see that he sa- it, God says, and I made man or Adam in my image. In my image, I made them male and female. He makes Adam's in his image. That includes both men and women, okay? So let's understand that first off. We're not talking about a guy. We're talking about something broader here. Adam is representative of all humanity in this sense, okay? All right, good. In the garden, you see God putting Adam there, people, to serve a particular purpose. And this garden is sustaining for people. It's not sustaining for God. God even says at certain points, I didn't create this to feed myself. I don't need the blood of bulls and goats. Come on, I'm God. This is not about me. It's more about what he wants for us. And we'll get to this role of Adam here in a little bit, but let's pay attention first to what's happening with the garden and the temple. But first, let's just everyone breathe. I get kind of manic about this stuff, so I apologize. Um, First is, I want you to become familiar with a few images in the temple itself. The first one, probably you have some kind of reference towards. It's the Ark of the Covenant. If any of you have ever seen Indiana Jones, then you, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now, the, the, this gets put in the temple. There's all kinds of imagery that's happening here. You can tell that it's just basically a box, a gold box with a lid, okay, the atonement cover, if you will. And this, this cover comes off, right? Um, I don't recommend doing it if you ever do come in contact with the lost one. Uh, but in, inside this, God tells Moses to put the Ten Commandments. Now, here's some of the imagery I want you to just to kind of wrap your head around with this. This is not about some box alone that has God's commandments in it. There's other things. If you ever re- read some of the accounts where the Ark of the Covenant comes up in the Old Testament, usually there's death involved, unfortunately. Uh, for instance, there's this one account where David is going to bring the Ark back into Jerusalem. And uh, the, uh, the people decide, let's just put the thing on a cart, okay? Because I know it's got poles, but that seems kind of antiquated. Let's just kind of put it on a cart and roll it into Jerusalem because that seems better. Well, what happens is like the thing gets wobbly and shakes and it starts to fall and this guy leans out to catch it and he dies and everyone freaks out because you weren't allowed to touch this thing and that's what the poles are for, doggone it, and God put them there for a reason, right? The, the, the point isn't that God is, you know, mean. It's that the ark stands for something that occurred when sin entered into the world. Just like you weren't supposed to touch that tree of knowledge of good and evil, you're not supposed to touch this thing. And it's not because somehow this tree is uh, inherently bad, but there's a sense that just like the Ten Commandments are inside and it stands for wisdom, God's wisdom, his commandments, the idea that the commands tell us what is good and what is not, that's the similar image that you have with the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? Does that make sense a little bit? Kind of weird, but you can see that happening. Now, you'll notice also on here, there's these two little winged things. Uh, These are cherubim, 
Um, that's the plural of cherubs. Now, when you think cherubs or cherubim, you can't think of naked baby butts. Okay? Nowhere in the Bible do you get this picture. As a matter of fact, you get the opposite idea. Anytime someone comes across a cherub or an angel, they fear for their life like they're going to die, right? Those are the kind of things that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah-ish, okay? Uh, And I've never been afraid of naked baby butts in that way. So you've got to kind of picture that these things are fearsome kind of things. Uh, Specifically, at the end of Genesis 3, after the fall happens, what is it that then guards the thing with flaming swords, the entrance into the garden? It's these two cherubim, right? These things are things to be feared. These things are associated also with something else. They're associated with God's presence. See, notice, this thing would be, I'll get to the different layers of the temple here in a moment, but this thing would be at the furthest part, the most inter-sanctum of the temple called the Holy of Holies. And right above this thing is what would be associated with God's presence. It's actually his footstool. Have you ever heard the reference that the earth is God's footstool? Okay, and then heaven is his throne, the earth is his footstool. Well, guess what? That part right there is what they associated with that. That's literally the footstool on earth. And so that, notice two cherubim on each side of it, right? This is how you see the throne room of God depicted also in the Bible. Think of Isaiah 6, right? Isaiah 6 is the commissioning of Isaiah. He's in the temple. He sees this vision. And there's these two cherubim, and there's this guy on the throne in in between them. Okay, this imagery is all throughout. You'll see it in um, Revelation all over the place. You'll see it in multiple places. Okay, nod your heads like, I understand what cherubim do and the Ark of the Covenant and all this stuff. Good. Now, this has all kinds of Eden imagery with the two cherubs and wisdom being a part of that. And don't touch me. Just like don't touch the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Okay, and sin becoming a big part of that with death. Now, there's other things, and there's this. There's the uh, menorah. It's a lampstand, okay? Now, when you think of a menorah, the language we use, we we could call it a candlestick. We could say that the candle has branches, right? This is in our vocab. This is how we describe this. Well, the, the menorah, the candlestick, would be representative of like the tree of life in the garden, okay? And it has got a predominant place within the temple structure. So again, you see a Genesis tree of life coming into the temple as being an intentional way of using space. Good so far? Here's the hardest one to wrap your mind around. This thing is the altar of incense. If you ever, if you get a close look, you can see like these things on the corner. Those are what get called horns on the altar in the Bible. Uh, That serves no real purpose, but there you go. Um, That The altar of incense would be within the temple right about, if you're looking at this here, you see this is the outer area where everyone can kind of be. This is the holy place where only certain people can go. uh, And you could, specifically gender related um, and disability related um, or physical um, things preclude you from going into this space. And then right here, is that area where the Ark of the Covenant is, okay? The Holy of Holies. Now, if you look right there, there's where the altar of incense is, um, right by this curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place. Now, 
This whole area becomes synonymous with Eden imagery, the holy place and the most holy place. You can see that guy. Evidently, they were charismatic back in the day. Okay, so there you go. Notice right there, there's the lampstand in the holy place. In Eden, the tree is in the garden, and there was no distinction between holy and most holy place. But here you have this altar of incense. What the stink is that thing? It's not just about smelling stuff, okay? It's not like we got to cover up an odor like we associate it with nowadays um, or some old thing. What we typically, this thing, if you come into the, once a year, one guy would come into the holy, most holy place, the holy of holies, the high priest, and he would go first to the altar of incense and he would start making the incense burn and it would create this smoke. And the smoke is supposed to fill the holy of holies. If you read Isaiah 6, you'll notice what's happening all around. There's all this smoke, okay? And the purpose of the smoke is to make this place not distinguishable by the eye because you don't want to look upon God. Even though there's nothing there, you still associate it with seeing in to the, uh, seeing in to the throne room of God. Just how the television shows us the gods of football or whatever, right? So you can look into it and you can see this. So the, the smoke is to prevent the, the high priest from being able to see God, basically, because if you see God, you die similar to everything associated with this and the tree of knowledge of good and evil and all that, okay? So far, so good. So that's what it's doing. Notice the three layers there. That's important because sin creates this separation. And when Jesus dies, and in Matthew, it's 27, something 27, wherever it is in Matthew, it's verse 27 when Jesus dies. The temple, 28, 27, no, that's not right. I don't know. Look it up for yourself. The, The the, Jesus dies, and it says the curtain's torn from top to bottom. It's split because now that separation's no longer there, okay? We'll get more to Jesus in a minute. Now, I want to show you some of the fun stuff that happens here. First, the trees. If you read in Genesis 2, verse 9, and I encourage you to have your Bibles open to Genesis 2 as we look through this, you'll see some fun stuff. Like, look at verse 9. It says, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant, to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now you might go, okay, these trees, great, awesome, but why a candle? Why does it have to be on fire? Well, you do see associations with this later on because how does God appear to Moses? In a burning tree of a sense. We, we refer to it as a bush. But God shows up in this form on a very holy place where he's going to start laying out how the structure of the temple should be done. Pretty cool, I think. Maybe I'm the only one. But that's, that's kind of the first one. So in, in Exodus 25, you get this very detailed picture of how the lampstand's supposed to look, thus the menorah. Other examples, you might go, oh, fine. That might be the case, but really... One thing, does that really persuade me that this whole Eden imagery and the temple are kind of mixed matching and based on one's based on the other? Let me show you some other examples that might tip the scales for you. One is, if you read Genesis 2.10, keep going, it says, A river flowed out of Eden to, the, to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. And if you read, it gives you the name of these rivers in 11. Now, what's going on here? Well, if you were to look at this book called Ezekiel, I know like all of you are like, oh yeah, Ezekiel, I read that every day. Well, 
Ezekiel, at the end of Ezekiel, it does something very similar to the end of Exodus. Just like Exodus focuses so much on the building of this tabernacle, the end of Exodus focuses so much on the building of a temple. And angels are measuring it out. Oh, wait, angels again? And then uh, he describes this happening in a very unique way. He shows that there is the temple on Mount Zion, and what's happening is that there's a river flowing out from the temple. Just like rivers flowed out of the garden, so too rivers flow out of the temple. And in Ezekiel 47, it shows that these, this river flows into this thing called the Dead Sea. And it makes it fresh water and things actually start to live there. Amazing. Well, that's the picture that you're getting of Eden. Because the way that the Eden is portrayed is that Adam's role, and remember, non-gender specific Adam, is to expand the garden. It's to expand God's presence into the rest of the world. God plants this garden and says, now go be fruitful and multiply and go out to all of the earth. Okay, do you get that picture? Same thing is happening in Ezekiel's picture. This river is important because it's symbolic of that. All right, let's keep going. Notice gold. If you read 11 through 12, which we're not going to do for time's sake, but if you read 11 through 12, you'll see gold mentioned in the garden. Um, And if you read in Exodus 25, gold becomes the predominant thing that is used to um, overlay the wood in the holy place and the most holy place. And everything's made out of gold. It's all over the place. So you have gold in Eden. Why mention that? Does Adam really need gold? Who's he going to barter with or trade with with gold? There are only people around, right? What's the point? You're in paradise. Why do I need gold? you see in the temple, you see that there is a point, and it's, it's referencing the idea that this place is serving a particular purpose and function. So gold in both places is important, temple and Eden. Precious stones. Now, it's not just the precious stones are mentioned in verse 12. If you look there, it'll mention certain ones. It's that particular precious stones are mentioned, and then if you turn to Exodus 28, don't not now, but later, I would encourage you. You can pick up a deeper sheet, and this will walk you through this. Uh, they're at the Welcome Center or online. Um, you can see that these precious stones in Exodus are on the priest's um, ephod. It's the, it's the robe that they would wear when they go in. These stones, the same stones that are in Eden, are placed on the actual garments that you know, the wardrobe of the priest, the high priest, okay? Now, that's not coincidental. That's important because those stones in Eden also would reference us to the idea that Adam is a priest and he has a particular role to play. We'll get to that in a moment. Ezekiel 28, you will find, this is a whacked out chapter, okay? It's, if you're reading this, it can be very hard to navigate because it seems like it's about this king of Tyre, but the way Ezekiel prophesies about him is he goes back to this old school idea of the garden, and he calls this king of Tyre similar to how Adam was, and the fall of the king of Tyre is going to be what the fall of Adam was, and he references the idea that Eden is on this mountain, and it's not just any mountain. It's the same mountain the temple's on. So what's happening is in Ezekiel 28, you get this meshing of the temple with the the garden. 
They're, they're the same in his mind. They serve the same purpose, so much so that he puts them in the same geographic location. Now, that's not to say that we should literally think that Eden was right there originally, but the purpose of both are the same, and for all intents and purposes, for God, they are. They're, they're synonymous. The temple is supposed to do what the garden was supposed to do, although in a very fractured way, but it's moving towards something. I want to give you another um, one, and this is at the fall. I already mentioned this, the two cherubim at the guarding the way, and then on the Ark of the Covenant, again in Exodus 25, it's portrayed there, and we'll come back to those cherubim in a minute. Um, however, I want to focus in on Adam, this idea of what is Adam's role in the garden? Well, it's the same role that priests have in the temple. And I'll give you some ideas of this. If you look, ancient Near East, in the ancient Near East, kings were thought to be the images of the God that was their God of where they lived. Does that sound familiar, being an image bearer of a God? If you look in Genesis 1, 26, it says the same thing about Adam. But remember, this is, he made the male and female. You are the image bearers of God. Adam is the image bearer of God. And that means what? That means that Adam is a priest because a king in the ancient Near East also functioned as a priest. If you are an image bearer of God, you function as a priest. And the king did that. Well, in Genesis, all people are that, not just one solo guy with a crown. This is like everybody is supposed to function that way. And this becomes more and more obvious as you trace your way through the Old Testament. This theme gets brought up more and more and more. I want to give you an example of how the, the tabernacle and the temple and the Garden of Eden are the presence of God. If you recall John chapter 1, verse 14, it says this. It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Focus in on that word dwelling. That same word dwelling is the same word that is used for tabernacle. Tabernacle is a tent, and tabernacle literally translated means dwell. Okay? To dwell. It's the place you dwell. Now, in John chapter 1, it says... Jesus, the word, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We can kind of get that. Like, okay, so he's doing the same thing that the tabernacle did. But I think the message version of the Bible says it best to get kind of the the thrust of what's going on here. It says the word, Jesus, became flesh and he moved into the neighborhood. That's what the temple, that's what the tabernacle, and that's what the garden is all doing. God creates a garden and he moves in. Tabernacle gets made, God moves in. Temple gets made, God moves in. Jesus is born, God's moved in. He's moved into our neighborhood. That's the whole idea, right? This whole footstool of God. That's what's going on here. A few things that will make this more obvious to you. Um, I'm not going to read this for you out loud, but I would encourage you to read it on your own. There's these two words that are associated with Adam. One is uh, the word abad. The other one is samar. Abad can mean cultivate, which is how it gets translated in the garden. But abad is also used in the temple for the priests. And it typically gets translated serve. This idea of service and cultivation are, are similar. And then if you look at the other one, samar means keep. But keep can also be translated guard. Notice what God says to his people later on about the priests who are in charge of the temple. He says, guard my commandments. He tells Adam, guard my garden. 
right? Adam and the priests have these similar roles, and that's what I want you to see, that everything that's happening in the temple was meant to reflect how things were supposed to have been in the Garden of Eden. And it's not only looking back, it's also looking forward, because this will remind us that God's making our story move forward to another day, when it'll be like the end of Ezekiel, and things will get restored, when it'll be like Revelation chapters 22 and 21 and 22, where There's a new heaven and a new earth, and this whole idea of revelation revolves around temple imagery with heaven and earth, right? That the garden imagery becomes synonymous, and you can't tell one from the other, the garden and the temple. So far, so good? Are you like mind fried? I don't know. Kind of look like you might be. I want to show you one other reference here, and this is what I'll close with. If you open your Bibles to John 20, we're not going to read this for time's sake, but again, go to the deeper sheets and get a better picture and dig into it for yourself. John 20, around 11-ish, I don't know, 15 for sure, 20, 11 or so, maybe a little bit before, you see what's happening here is Jesus has died and he's being buried in the tomb. Now, in John, we get a different uh, details about this that are important for how this plays back to what we're talking about. See, if you look at the text, it says Jesus died on the day of preparation. What is the day of preparation? It's preparing for the day of rest, the day of Sabbath. Jesus is laid in the tomb and actually rests, a literal rest of death, right? You notice how death always gets synonymous with some kind of sleeping? So Jesus is resting in this tomb. The, the text will tell you that this tomb is in a particular place. It's in a garden. He's resting in a garden, although he's dead, right? Has anyone like wowed so far? Is that like tipping the scales a little bit that God's doing something very intentional here? Well, if that doesn't do it for you, keep reading because what you'll see is that when Jesus is resurrected from the dead, Mary and the disciples have all come, and they look in to the tomb, and what do they see? They see one angel at the foot of where Jesus was, and one angel at the head of where Jesus was, just like two cherubim standing guard, right? Is that not like blow your mind that God is like repeating stuff? And then this is the part that just like sends me over the edge. So Mary Magdalene is like freaking out. And then she sees all this stuff is happening, and she's, you know, kind of out of sorts, as one would expect her to be. And then she turns, and she sees this guy who's Jesus, but she doesn't think he's Jesus. He, she thinks he's the gardener. Why the gardener? Because he's the guy that would obviously take care of this, just like a priest would take care of his area, just like Adam would take care of the garden, just like the priest would take care of the temple. In a, in a very symbolic way, Mary associates Jesus with what he has actually become. He has become the actual high priest, as the book of Hebrews would show us. But this is the coolest part. Jesus doesn't just say, cool, look at me. I'm the the high priest. No, he then later goes on and he says, now you, disciples, go make other disciples. Because what is his kingdom? It's expansive. It's expanding. It's supposed to take over the rest of the world. God's kingdom, you know, if you see all the descriptions of God's kingdom, that's what the temple picture is. Christ came down as the temple, but now it's exploded, and it's starting to encompass the rest of creation with Jesus 
all of this new creation has started to unfold in a very slow manner, if you ask me, but that's what the Bible would show us, right? It's, it's, it's here through Christ, but we're still, we're still waiting for the culmination of all things. And in that waiting time, we act as priests ourselves, and that's our role. So what's going on here? What is the temple? The temple is God's presence, and it's based on the idea of God's presence in the garden. So what? So what does that mean for us, right? So, so what am I supposed to do about that? Well, you are priests too. You are a part of Christ's body. You are a part of Christ's temple. Well, not, now what am I supposed to do about that? Well, you're supposed to be a priest. You're supposed to go and make disciples, right? You're supposed to do the things that a priest does. You're supposed to expand the kingdom. Does that make sense? You see how that's working? Would you rise with me real quick? I'd like to take us into our time of communion, but as we transition into this, I, wanna sh- I, w- I, want, I want you to see how Christ's body becomes symbolic for the temple. Because on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he gave thanks, and he gave it to them, and he said, take and eat, this is my body. Take and eat, this is my temple. And what does the temple do? It's shed for you. It's for the forgiveness of your sins. And then after they had eaten, he took the cup, and he gave them the cup, and he said, take and drink. This is my blood of the New Testament. Not that the old one's bad, I'm just better. And it's shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. The table of the Lord's prepared. And as we get ready to come forward, I'd invite you to say our memory passage that we've been working on, the idea that Jesus' Bible, the Old Testament, is not antiquated, but it means something for us. Matthew five seventeen. say it with me. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets.